Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. Just like we think Bowie knows something, these people think I know something. Philip K. Dick, Exegesis, page 283. <laughs> I am a fictionalizing philosopher, not a novelist. The core of my writing is not art, but truth. In a way, Dallas was shit, Lampton said. We had to make it that way to get the distributors to pick it up for the popcorn-driven crowd. There was merriment in his voice, a musical twinkling. They expected me to sing, you know. Hey, Mr. Starman, when you dropping in? I think they were a bit disappointed. Do you see? Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. It's a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at, at sync 42 and at SyncBook. Likely, today we will consider nothing, or more specifically, the nothing, which means we'll be thinking about death and life. We'll do so with the help of David Robert Jones, Ziggy Stardust, and of course, Mother Goose. All right, Douglas, tell us about today's guest. Simon Critchley first encountered David Bowie in the early 70s, when the singer appeared on Britain's most-watched music show, Top of the Pops. His performance of Starman mesmerized Critchley. It was so sexual, so knowing, so strange. Two days later, Critchley's mom bought a copy of the single. She liked both the song and the performer's bright orange hair. She had previously been a hairdresser. The seed of a lifelong love affair was thus planted in the mind of her son, age 12. Simon Critchley is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York. He is the author of many books, such as The Book of Dead Philosophers, The Faith of the Faithless, and Stay Illusion, The Hamlet Doctrine. Most recently, he is the author of Bowie, published by OR Books. He is also the series moderator of The Stone, a philosophy column in the New York Times to which he is a frequent contributor and which he authored a three-part series regarding the philosophy of Philip K. Dick in the spring of 2012. We are extremely honored and pleased to be hosting him today. Hello, Simon, and welcome. How are you this morning? All right. Not bad. Very pleased to be here with you both. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start maybe in a strange place, but... When you became mm-hmm. the guest, a guest lecturer at the University of Sydney in 2000, something happened yeah. to the philosophy department. Could you explain this and tell why it has meaning in regards to your own work, and would you deem this a synchronicity? Oh, what do you mean? Where they, uh, they decided to become one department after having been two departments? Yes. Okay. Uh well, that's a strange question, but it's a good. Uh, uh, I went out there as a what was called a visiting. It was a visiting lectureship in philosophy. It was great, and uh, this was a, a department of uh, philosophy that divided in the early seventies over Australia's participation in Vietnam. People forget that Australia was involved in Vietnam. It was as, as divisive an issue there as it is as it was in the U.S. 
and the department divided more or less of left-right, which broke down in terms of the distinction between continental philosophy, which was largely kind of Marxist, and then analytic philosophy. Then after 30 years of this, they decided they, well, they decided they were basically forced by the university administration to get along with each other a bit better. And uh, that, that's when I turned up, yeah. But so why <laughs> why does that have any meaning in regards to the, your own work? Uh, I don't know, really. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, what would you think? What, what's, what's on your mind? So one of, the, one of the books that I read in preparation for this was your brief introduction to continental philosophy. Right. And oh, right. So in terms of bringing together the two sides of the continental and analytic traditions right. yeah yeah I mean, it was it was a kind of little parable uh of that and um yeah so it was you know i think that there's there's this distinction which is at one level really boring that there are different camps of philosophers and they hate each other for you know the usual reasons which are personal and they dress it up in terms of um, intellectual traditions and standards and all of that nonsense there's a deeper, uh, a deeper story which I try and tell in this little book, which is about the um, about different habits of mind and ha- different habits of mind going back, you know, a few centuries. That the con- what we call continental philosophy is largely that tradition which is linked to speculation, to traditions of like romanticism, literature, uh, creativity, interpretation. And the other side of the uh, of things is the what we call analytic philosophy, which is more concerned with empirical concerns, uh, logic, scientific method, and things like that. And the point I was trying to make in the book was that that distinction, those two halves um, of things, are, um, are are when if you go back to say the 19th century, a character like John Stuart Mill, uh, he'll say these are two halves of the English philosophical mind. There is a speculative, romantic uh, tradition and a kind of logical, empiricist tradition. And so rather than seeing constant philosophy and analytic philosophy as having to do with the way things are in one country as opposed to the way they are in France or Germany, these are two tendencies which, uh, which make up um, uh, a kind of a national character. And that's the story I was trying to tell. And that, that hopefully would help you know, deepen this debate and make it more interesting than simple personal animosity amongst philosophers. Who cares about that, really? <laughs> and you kind of define the difference in knowledge and wisdom. Could you ex- yeah. explain that a little bit? The difference? What? Well, it, yeah, yeah. It was more that, I mean, this is, um, this feels like ancient history to me, so it's interesting because I'm try- I was. It's always peculiar to try and remember what you said at different points. Well, what's fascinating is how that tiny book speaks well, to the your most recent book, the David Bowie book, in some right. Way. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote both of them. They weren't like they weren't ghostwritten. No, it well, was. This, uh, this brings so up that you have you yeah, have this on. idea about the relationship between biology and philosophy, or like if it, it I kind of see it as related to the media as the message, or perhaps like the life of a person is equivalent to his work. Yeah, I think there's, there's a there is a you know there's a there's a fantasy 
uh, amongst philosophers that they're really scientists and that sci- what scientists are doing is, to, is, is they're giving us more and more knowledge about things. All the philosophers are closely allied to scientists and we, we can check and test their methods for them and this is nonsense. Scientists don't really care much about philosophy. But this is one fantasy philosophers have that we're in the knowledge business. Now, that might or might not be the case. But the um, there's a, a, a deeper, longer, more ancient tradition of philosophy being concerned with something like wisdom, namely how you lead a, a life and uh, what kind of life is a life that should be led. And philosophy begins in the person of Socrates with an exemplary life, which ends in him committing suicide, oddly enough. And it goes on like that. And that, that emphasis upon the, the, the biographical uh, philosophy is a way of life, those kinds of things, has been progressively kind of eliminated from mainstream philosophy in the name of knowledge, science, and all the rest. And I, I think that's a kind of mistake. Philosophy's appeal is um, he, he's an appeal to a person, an individual, in terms of, you know, in terms of offering a, a certain path of wisdom that might, might lead them to have a more, a more compelling, more intense, interesting life, you know. And if you lose that, you lose much of what's interesting about philosophy. So wisdom is very important. But philosophy isn't possession of wisdom, it's love of wisdom. Right? It's not that you have wisdom and you can, like some guru, sell it to people. That's not what we're doing. All that we're doing is trying to encourage through teaching an orientation that you can have in your, what Plato would have called your soul, we call the self, towards uh, an orientation towards wisdom to be interested in being wiser uh, and whatever that might mean. So, yeah, we're not gurus. We, we don't know a ton of stuff. Uh, <laughs> we are part of a three-year, 3,000-year tradition where none of the major issues have been resolved ever. There's been no progress at all in philosophy, and that's very good. And so what is the, the job of philosophy? Uh, to... Um, to wake people up from uh, fantasies of progress, you know, the idea that, you know, the right cocktail of neuroscience and meditation is going to solve, and cosmology is going to solve all life's questions, or whatever whatever the latest version of uh, a complete, complete theory of everything is going to be. Philosophy can poke holes in that uh, very successfully. So we have, you know, sort of refined critical intelligences which can show that what certain people are saying is, is nonsensical. So philosophy is very good at that. And it's very good at learning, you know, um, a kind of, um, I think it's a kind of modesty that the, the, human, the human condition, the human situation hasn't changed that much over the, the millennia. You know, we're not, we're not that different from people in ancient Greece or in medieval Europe. We're not that different. And the questions which perplex them are questions which perplex us. And by reading those texts, we can, we can learn something. Right? So there's a kind of, uh, for me, a kind of humility in philosophy. Right? We're not going to, we're not going to, the, the answer isn't out there. It's not 42 or whatever it is. What you have is a question, right? And uh, philosophy gives you a way of thinking through that question in a way that's illuminating, that at best can kind of shift the aspect under which you see things in a way that's very similar to poetry for me. You know, it's not very different from poetry or literature or film. Uh, these are things which can also shift our habits of perception. So, 
so for me, uh, you know, it, it, philosophy has a critical side, you know, a way of waking us up from certain delusions which we continue to believe, and uh, a kind of uh, you know, a slightly humble side that you know, let's read these books together and see what they can tell us about things. Okay, yeah. so I like to play this little game sometimes and just do a, a free association. I'll say a word, and you just tell me you can. Okay. For as long as you want, you just tell me what you think about this word, okay? So, uh, all right, moment of silence, and then I'll say the word. All right. Zebra. Stripes. Here, here's a question. So, when you wrote the, the th- <laughs> white stripes, Jack White. <laughs> when you wrote the piece stripes. for the New York Times about Philip K. Dick, did you read Vallis or did you just read the exegesis to get his? I mainly, I mainly read the exegesis. It was, uh, it was, it was a, it, it was, it was kind of a commission that began. I was contacted by Jonathan Leatham, the novelist, and uh-huh. he wanted some. He wanted, um, he wanted some, uh, someone, philosopher, whoever, to help with um, making. Writing writing notes for this exegesis, and I thought this was a crazy idea. Then I took it away with me to Las Vegas of all places, and uh, was there for a few days, and was reading it and thinking, yeah, this is really interesting. This really peculiar. And then I began to write notes, and then those notes turned into something more linear and consequential. So then I, it turned that 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 piece that then we broke up into three bits for the Times, and. Um, it's uh, you know, it, it's so I'm not, I'm not a dickhead as they as they say as they call themselves. <laughs> uh, I, I find I find him uh, really compelling, and there's something about the, um, I don't know. Um, he says somewhere that you know, something like the future is. You know, he's writing the future. The future has been written in his books, and it, it's as if his books are have become true. And there is something about that. You know, there's something about the world that he lived in, which, let's say, in the 70s, he introduces a kind of dystopian strand in science fiction, fiction, which is, you know, very much the way in which we tend to see things. So, for good or ill, we live in a Philip K. Dick universe. Even if, even if Philip K. Dick isn't writing the script, all of those movies, those kind of end-of-world movies, those fantasies of pre-crime or apocalypse or whatever it might be are kind of in that, that philoctetic mold. And the world the world is there, is seen there as a, as a rather kind of dark place, a chaotic place run by a network of corporations who are out to get you. And um, what, 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 what picks Dick out for me as a, as a, a figure is his, his enormous commitment to, to truth and sincerity. He wants to he thinks he can see through this, and uh, he can help all of us see through it as well. So it's not—he's not, you know, a lot of people that would have that dark vision would end up as being cynics or ironists, and he's not at all. So, but I'm not a specialist at all. What's fascinating to me, yeah. as far as coincidence goes, is that in Vallis, which is his first attempt at trying to understand his two, three, seven, four event. The right. his pink light and and the golden fish and all that in golden in, fish <laughs> in in Vallis, uh these rock stars Brian Eno and David Bowie make a film called Vallis and then David or Philip K Dick <laughs> goes to the theater to to watch this movie and so 
David Bowie actually, and it's not David Bowie. It's called Mother Goose in the in the, right. in the book. Well, I mean, we just read that passage at the beginning of the intro, and in that right. passage, he basically says, "I am the Starman." So, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to show that it is David Bowie. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that that little resonance is funny because in your book, you you say, in terms of Philip K. Dick, you know, we in the in the the piece that you do for the New York Times, you're talking about Philip mm-hmm. K. Dick's Gnosticism and and how Gnosticism yeah. is the worship of an alien god by those alienated from the world. But then in mm-hmm. in uh, Bowie, you say. There is a world for whom Bowie was the being who permitted a, a powerful emotion connection, you know. So some, you know, opening up this other self. But he's the, he's the alien, and so I just thought that yeah. was. He's kind of the alien god, Bowie. I think that's that, that's a good. I hadn't thought of that. It's a very interesting connection. It, it's just, you know, for us, I think that you know, the, this book on Bowie begins with you know um, me watching television in 1972, and 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 that. Moment. I mean, that uh, if you've seen Todd Haynes's Velvet Goldmine, which is a great film, it begins with a young Christian Bale who's playing this sort of disaffected English kid who's about the age I was, a little bit older, watching that on TV and thinking, thinking at one level, it's me or I'm that. At another level, who is that? You know, this is so strange. Bowie is without was there, was this kind of alien figure. So. I think for uh, a lot of very ordinary English girls and boys at this time, Bowie became a kind of, yeah, kind of alien god. That's right. Who was going to um, lead us away from this kind of hell that we were living in into something, not salvation exactly, but something a lot more glamorous and interesting. That's for sure. And, 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 and sexual as well. There was this kind of, weird sexual charge with Bowie that people couldn't work out because it wasn't this kind of macho, you know, rock star, Robert Plant. I think that was all He was gone. kind of feminine. He was feminine, he was androgynous, he was this he was this mixture of this kind of bundle. Yeah. This mixture of sexual this complicated sexual being. And that to people, you know, in a context that was pretty homophobic, you know, to say the least at the time, he 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 spoke volumes. So yeah, he was a kind of alien god, right? Yeah, I think it's great. I, I, didn't, I didn't know about the the, Celtic, the movie. That that's great. I mean, it, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, you're there, a movie there's, there's, fan, there's though, a lot... right? I noticed it. Oh I mean, sure. Reference... Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So the theory that yeah. that I have basically is that an actor, when an actor's in multiple movies, right? You can watch the movie mm-hmm. and. In a way, there's some kind of thread, a philosophical. Usually, you usually have to go through mythology, some kind of archetype, right? But it will penetrate mm-hmm. their entire list. It's kind of, it's kind of like typecasting, but we've come to call it archetype casting, and it's this whole idea mm-hmm. that a person's work, like Philip K. Dix or any actor, Brad Pitt or whatever, I mean, their work relates to their personal being. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. So a good a good instance would be if you read the story, you know, Total Recall. Of course, you've seen the movie. You know the storyline. Mm-hmm. Both yeah. movies, right? It was that powerful that it was made yeah. twice. So um, Total Recall <laughs> in the story, it's sodium pentothal that they give the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, character to wake up. I mentioned I mentioned this in the last show, so I'm going to reiterate it right mm-hmm. here, but 
Uh, so it's this idea that that was written about 10 years before Philip K. Dick's experience, but it's about his experience right. because, like you said in your mm-hmm. piece, he gets Total Recall, right? So the character in the mm-hmm. Total Recall is Dick himself at a later date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. It, it, it's the, I mean, what's interesting about, what well, interesting is the wrong word, it's just, what is, um, you know, he, um, I mean, Philip K. Dick is, is, is a classic mystic in the, the sense that um, I, I, I taught a class on mysticism last year and I'm very interested in mysticism. And uh, mystics weren't having visions all the time. You know, it wasn't like that. They, they, they usually had a vision, there was a showing, a revelation, and then they interpreted it. And so Julian of Norwich, who wrote the first, the first book in English by an English woman is Julian of Norwich's showings 1382 or something like that and it's a fantastic book but she she has a vision she has her moment which is her like philokadic golden fish moment and then she spends the next 30 40 years interpreting it in in more and more elaborate ways and that's exactly what dick does the weird thing about dick is he prefigures it right he can see it coming and um well he said acting is also true in in the sense in which the, the paradox of acting is that you know if you are if acting is Acting isn't pretending. Uh, people think that acting is playing a role, which it isn't. Uh, good actors don't pretend. Good actors just are. Right? They're, they're a certain being. And um, I've talked to a number of actors about this. If you pretend, you, you look like you're acting badly. So all you can do is be the person that you are, which means you're not acting. So what are you doing when you're acting? It's a really strange question. And Bowie, Bowie, so Bowie you know, saw himself as an actor was playing, occupying these different roles and uh, from Ziggy Stardust through Diamond Dogs, Thin White Duke, on, onwards to when he became a kind of rock star in the 80s. Um, but he's not acting. It, 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 the weird thing is that there's a kind of absolute fakery about Bowie and about most great rock stars. A real fakery. It's not authentic. And yet there's still a kind of truth that comes through. It's, it's about him and you feel that truth through the, the music. It's as simple as that. So, um, and if someone fakes it, if someone pretends to be Bowie, you know immediately it's, 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 it's a fake Bowie. So, what do you think of weird, <laughs> yeah. Lana Del Rey? <laughs> in terms of... Oh, oh I, love Lana, I love Lana Del Rey. I didn't realize we'd talk about that. Okay. Well, I, just, <laughs> because you're, I can't help but go there when you talk about the illusion and the fakery. And okay, well, I, I, I'd love to go there. I mean, I uh, okay. So one of my discoveries of the summer, I was aware of her. I mean, you know, uh, but I mean, I've got this view of you know, what what are students for? I mean, what are students for? Students are for middle-aged professors like me to get music recommendations. That's really what they're <laughs> for. And so I, I, I use students mercilessly all the time to get. And I, I, I try and I listen to a lot of music all the time. I always try and look for things. But people know what I'm interested in. They, they send me stuff. And someone sent me a, a link to West Coast by Lana Del Rey. And I was totally blown away by it. It was brilliant. I mean, the video was great, but the, just the song structure was so good. Then I downloaded that last album, Ultraviolence, and been listening to that a lot over the summer. It's not all good, but there's five or six really good tracks, and I get what she's doing, yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't know where we, we, we go with that, but it, I it's, it's, been, it's been a source of great pleasure. <laughs> I think people have a really hard time with this idea that 
she's not purely authentic in the no. sense of what we think of. Yeah, but that, but yeah, yeah. But I think there's a problem. I think there's a problem in particular with um, I don't say American news. I don't want to say that because it's there's a kind of I guess how do I put this? There's this we have this reverence for a band that you know all these three guys go to a cabin for three years and then at the end of those three years they emerge with 40 minutes of music and we're all meant to clap and go god that's really authentic it sounds so deep and they really seem to mean it and i think no you know actually music is about music is theater it's musical theater it's about illusion and playing with illusion but there are people that can do that and you it's still there's still a there's still a truth to it there's still a power to it and those are and that's good stuff. That, that, that's good work. The idea, the idea that it's, I think there's a kind of, I guess, I, I think this is perhaps clearer from an English perspective than it is from elsewhere in the sense that, you know, we, all we did was receive stuff from the United States for decades, right? And then eventually began to replay it in an inauthentic way back. And then it became popular here in the form of things like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And then, that was taken to a much higher level in the, uh, you know, in the big seventies bands, and then people like Bowie himself. So, in in, in England, there was there's always been this sense in which we are just we're listening and picking stuff up, and then using it, inhabiting those forms, which are not our forms. You know, why does Mick Jagger speak the way he does? He's not from Mississippi, you know, and and then you know replaying that back, but it can still be good or not good. If you get my drift, yeah. So, so it's not. So the idea that music is a kind of, you know, it, it's some kind of authentic expression of the soul which pours out through the instruments is, it's a little bit tiresome. It doesn't really capture what artists actually do when they're they're playing with images, they're using influences, they're sampling, mixing all that stuff, and and yet it's you know a song can be knitted together by something really powerful. So you can you can have. A, you know, a, a pop song as an act of complete artifice, complete self-conscious artifice at every level. And you could pick all the references and all the uh, all the samples, you could track the whole thing back and still it has an effect, it does something. Or it doesn't, or it could be rubbish. But I think that's um, that's just the way it is. I mean, you know, the, the strange thing about music for me is that why more of it isn't worse in the sense in which, you know, Simon Cowell has been involved in a kind of one-man mission to destroy everything that's meaningful about popular <laughs> music for the last few years. And he's been almost successful, but still there'll be things that, that pop through the cracks, you know? You cannot, you know, and, that, that, and that's, that's great. So um, whether Lana Del Rey is one of those things, I don't know, man, but I, I've been very, I've been, you know, uh, I, I guess I picked, on it, picked up on it late, but I think I get what she's doing. It's really good. At the core of Bowie's music is the exhilaration of an experience of nothing and the attempt to hold on to it. But this doesn't mean yeah. that Bowie is a nihilist. Could you... Yeah. So this is interesting to me in terms of that little book that we were talking about earlier, which is this this idea where nihilism really becomes an important idea later on for yeah. the continental school of thought. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, nihilism is the idea that, you know, we have to, you know, we, we believe nothing, right? We believe nothing. We we will deny everything that appears in 
you know, the great Russian novels of the late 19th century, Turgenev and Dostoevsky, and um, it's then picked up by Nietzsche and so on and so forth. And, and you know, it's the idea that um, the highest values, God, freedom, immortality, have devalued themselves, and we're left with, we're left with nothing. Yeah, it's a position that was played out with great purpose by the uh, Ross Cole character in True Detective earlier this year. He's a kind of voice for that um, that kind of nihilist perspective. He just he says, you know, yeah, he's you know he thinks he does like this whole yeah, monologue. Yeah. Where he just sounds nothing but Nietzsche. It's like yeah, yeah, and some other things as well. But it's great. I mean, it, it, it's you know, it's it might also be true um, in the sense in which look at this, look at this world, you know, what, what sense does this world make? I don't know. It, 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 and then you're inclined to think, it, did it make sense? Well, you know, when we had mutually assured destruction in the 1960s and 70s, although that was, that was lunacy, at least it made sense. You knew there were these two people that were Soviets and Americans and they hated each other and they're going to destroy each other. And then the world kind of fell into line. In, in, along those, along that that, that crazy, um, that crazy trajectory. Whereas now you look at the world, and you think, what what is this about? You know, and that now, the day before the 9/11 celebrations again, there'll be another speech by the president, inviting you know Americans to support another foreign adventure in this you know in the same disastrous area that was screwed up you know because of what happened in 2001. It's, it's beyond it beggars belief, right? That this, this is even happening. And so, you know, in, to that extent, you're inclined to say with Ross Cole, no, it's it's nothing. This is nothing. And, and so in Bowie's music, you get that moment. You get that moment of kind of, of, of nihilism. Um, and then, but he doesn't leave it with that. He wants, like with Nietzsche, Nietzsche wanted a revaluation of values, but to try and see through the crap and to... Um, and to see through the moral hypocrisy, in particular Christianity, and to uh, to find a new to find new moral moral sources that would be linked to art. And I think Bowie's in that kind of business too. So I I, I think that not that I'm a I think nihilism is a place you have to is an experience you have to go through in order to come out the other side. You know, it's not all abundance and growth. It's not all kind of you know spiritual karma and yoga classes and money making and that is just it's not Ariana Huffington it's that's that's ideological crap that the philosophical task is just you know we have to to begin by cutting through that seeing ourselves as the moral hypocrites that we are and seeing the world as the kind of crazy place that it is kind of tearing that away seeing it and and then then we begin to, to rethink it in more honest terms that's kind of you asked before what I think philosophy is. I think philosophy is that, you know. In terms of nihilism, um, yeah, and I don't actually know the history. Heidegger was his response to that nihilism, an embracing of national socialism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was in a sense in which, in that context, um, that the you know the ludicrous imperial ambitions of. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, which had led Germany into the stupidity of the First World War, had come to nothing. And there was a, a sort of dysfunctional democracy in the 1920s in Germany, Weimar Germany, 
which was led to a you know a massive economic crisis, and um, it led Heidegger stupidly towards uh, an embrace of national socialist ideology in the in the early thirties, as it did with a lot of other people, and um, I you can, I think that was a, a grotesque error, but I can see how it got to that. You know, it's not. It, you know, it's the the way that usually argued is that you know Heidegger was a bad boy because he believed in Nazism and we should all become liberals or something. Whereas that's you know the problem that um, the problem that Heidegger was facing was that liberalism wasn't just not working; it was making things a lot worse. There was a a liberal regime in Germany; it was completely screwing things up. So what? How does one respond to that? Well, you can respond to that in different ways. You can have a you know you could purify liberalism, vote for Obama, you could you could move towards the extreme right, which is what's happening all across Western Europe at the, right now, in Britain, yeah. Denmark, Netherlands, um, been, yeah, towards right-wing populism, clinging onto forms of nationalism, or you could argue for a, a left-wing, you know, radical or revolutionary agenda. Um, uh, they're all responses to the same, the same crisis that we're going through. Um, so uh, that doesn't exculpate I mean, what Heidegger did was uh, spectacularly stupid and naive and careeristic, but you know, um, some of it was up, you know, in his context. And wow. uh, and other people, other people had exactly the same diagnosis, but they happened to be Marxists, and we um, we sort of think, well, that was okay, whereas maybe that wasn't okay either, you know. So the sense in which Heidegger gets picked out for. Um, uh, well, he's on the wrong side of history, a, then maybe. Yes, yeah, the wrong side of history. But I think that the I mean, Heidegger is the for me the um, oh, I mean, just the most interesting philosopher of the 20th century. Um, because I mean, because his philosophy is so powerful and his hands were so dirty. I think that's for me that's important. If you want, I think again, I, I like. The philosophers with dirty hands, in a way, that there's a sense in which if we want, if we want our heroes to be clean, then we we can find those. But uh, there's something enormously powerful about Heidegger's work in the, the existential analysis of the early work and the, the history of philosophy, and it led him to make certain very stupid choices. And that there's a kind of lesson in both those things for me. Um, we don't get clean hands. <laughs> to bring it back to uh, True Detective, I you True know, Detective, funny. okay. So, yeah, because it's it's fun. Lana kind of... Del Rey and True Detective, I love those. <laughs> <situations. laughs> We're with you, man. We run in the how, same. How house. much further? How, how much further can we take it down? It's great. <laughs> well, there's a way that True Detective kind of connects with Philip K. Dick in a way because there's a part in there yes. when he's talking about or, or what is it? How do you say it? Or God. Orthogonal time, I can't. Orthogonal time that comes up. Yes, that comes up. Yeah, it does come up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that, and um, at the the very end when he's going towards the Yellow King or whatever, there's a point where that uh, his half sister or whatever is in the house. Called, with him. What did yeah. they call it? What was that? Car Carcosa, Car Yeah. Car Carcosa. The Lost City. Car-cosa, yeah. When they when they get to her, she says something like. He's the biggest part of all of our lives. It kind of makes this whole point of saying that, like the the Yellow King at the very end was a big part of Matthew McConaughey, 
and uh, mm-hmm. Woody Harrelson's lives. Like it was almost the point of their whole lives. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it, I yeah, I, I think the resolution of the it often happens with series like that. Um, I was totally disappointed by the last episode of Leftovers. I thought that was disastrous. <laughs> but the uh, but True Detective, yeah, I think these things have got to end, and it ends with this kind of speech about light and dark, and you know. And even the Ross Cole character can see the light amongst the darkness, and you sort of think, oh, okay, fair enough. But I mean, what what was interesting was the elaboration of his his character and his interaction with the Woody Harrelson character. And to me, what Ross Cole was trying to be was he was trying not to be a moral hypocrite. That was really that was really what it was about. I mean, and the other guy, Harrelson, was a moral hypocrite. He was cheating right. on his wife. He was. It was a total. He was a total fraud. Leading this kind of family uh, life with his commitment to the force and to the town and the neighbourhood, and it was all crap. And Ross Cole was trying to live in the truth. He was. He was. He was the the philosopher, right? He was the philosopher. He was someone trying to live in the truth and and what that would take. Oh, it was a, just a fantastically uh, rich portrayal. Also, I thought of, of his. You know. His sense of uh, aestheticism, you know, there's a, there's a, this this aesthetic side that he, you know, he didn't eventually, you know, Woody Harrelson's wife, the character, seduces him, but there's no sex. There's a kind of monastic quality to him, um, and this uh, obsession with with finding out the truth, with detection, and um, there's a kind of purity to that. And I thought it was it was great to see that depicted on. On TV, and I think people responded to it because it's just true. Um, what is truth? Is that a question that philosophers consider? Well, truth, truth has to begin by uh, cutting through our prejudices. You know, so I mean, so that, that you could say, well, truth is at least three things. I mean, you could say truth is a there's there are logical truths, mathematical truths, which are true by virtue of their form. Two plus two plus four. There are empirical truths. You know, there is a tree outside the window and um, looking at with slightly brown leaves. That's an empirical truth. And both those ideas of truth, ideas of truth, are kind of fine but not exhilarating. What we mean by truth is something more than that. And what interests me is that the word truth in English, it's not like that in most other languages, but the word truth is linked to the idea of to be true to. Right? So, it's, so it's truth. Uh, it's truth as an idea being true to as a kind of loyalty or fidelity. So what people are after in truth is not whether there's a tree outside the window or whether two plus two equals four. It's whether you can be true to something, faithful to something. So truth for me is very close to the experience of faith. And it's a kind of existential disposition. And you can live in accordance with it or you cannot. And that's so the Ross Cole character for me, is, is someone who's living in the truth. And uh, that, requires, that requires stripping away a good deal of, of cant and moral hypocrisy. And that's very hard. And when people do that, we think of them as freaks, misfits, and outsiders. And, um, um, but that's it. But that, so I think in many ways, what we can, we can deal with these things, we can deal with this experience of truth in, in art uh, in ways that maybe we can't deal with in our lives because our lives are our lives are complicated things, right? So 
I guess what we're here. Why why do people why do people still listen to Joy Division? Say, why do people still listen to Nirvana? It's not just because those people killed themselves at a ridiculously young age. It's because there's a there's a truth there. There was sort of there was an honesty to the project. That doesn't mean by listening to them doesn't mean you're going to start killing yourself or you know you you can you can find characters that you empathise with, sympathise with who are speaking a truth and it, 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 in a way you can spend time with them and it gives you, it gives you time off from your other responsibilities, which you inevitably have to go back with. I mean, living like Ross Cole would be really hard. Be great. But... Wow. So we're winding Man. down. David Bowie, <laughs> <laughs> David, David Bowie. <laughs> ground covered, man. <laughs> <laughs> for David Bowie's press release for the next day, that album, there were 42 words. That's do you, right. Do you think that was an intentionality, a joke on his part, or is that just the way the universe works? No, it wasn't even a press release. It, was, it wasn't a press release. It was these were uh, these were 42 words that were sent to the the writer Rick Moody, uh, and Rick Moody asked um, uh, was requesting you know some kind of and. It, Bowie knows Rick Moody's work, admires it. And me and Rick have just, just done a thing on Lodger. We're going to do a, we've done this text on Lodger that's going to come out in Salon, I think, at some point soon. Anyway, but so there's 42 words amongst words like nerve and sonic, which is a great word, sonic. Um, I forget, anarchist is another word, blide. And these were words that Bowie, I think they're sincere words. They're words that, were words that he was using when he was organizing that work. I think that's the way he he thinks. He doesn't think in terms of um, you know narrative units or concepts in a very organized way. I think there are kind of clusters of ideas, which he then will the music will take shape around. I mean, a big thing with Bowie, which is it's also that the book imitates this. It's not obvious. Is is the cut up technique that you find in Burroughs and, and Geisen in the you know from the sixties that. Yeah. There's, there's a kind of truth to cut up. You take a story and you just break the whole thing up. And, and in that seeming randomness and accidental quality, different patterns emerge. And Bowie's lyrics from the mid-70s onwards are using cut up progressively. And it allows his work to be very kind of imagistic, very suggestive. Um, and seemingly sort of, you know, there's no story. There's no story being told. But for that reason, it's all the more powerful. And what I try to do with the book, I, the first version I wrote was was some linear structure, linear narrative, and then I thought, no, I'm going to cut this up and just see. So I got a hard copy and then began to move pages around and realized that if you did that, you ended up with a actually a much more interesting structure and things bumped together in odd ways. So there's a kind of truth to cut up, which is also a, a truth about the creative process in the sense in which... Um, you know, uh, I guess as anybody will tell you, you've got to let accidents happen, right? And um, yeah. creativity is is linked to just letting, and you get into a situation where you've got people that are committed to something, that are maybe skilled, disciplined, and then something accidental happens and it's really good. And then you go with that. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you. Yeah, for, okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing it with us. Uh, thank you for, thank you for, being at the end of the phone, it's been great fun. Um, <laughs> all right, I enjoyed that, Doug and Will. It's great. Wonderful. Well, to our listeners, you've been listening to Simon 
Critchley on Thinkbook Radio, production of The Thinkbook.com. Critchley, Critchley, Critchley. Critchley, Critchley. Dude, I'm so horrible with this. I don't even know why Doug lets me do this. Finish me off, Douglas. Uh, you've been listening to Simon Critchley on Thinkbook Radio, a production of TheSyncBook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Critchley can be found on his website, simoncritchley.org. For more information about The Thinkbook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit the website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation link under each episode on the website. Consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. And the Buddha. Yeah, I get these. Fun. Yeah. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That was a lot of fun. That was great. That was great. Didn't know what time it was. The lights were low. Oh, oh. I leaned back on my radio. Oh, oh. Some cat was laying down some rock and roll. That is all he said. Then the loud sound that seemed to fight Came back like a slow voice on a wave of fight That one no DJ, that was Hazy Cosmic Jive There's a starman waiting in the sky He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'd blow our minds There's a